the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another edition of Hotel Bar Sessions. This week, we're very excited to have Sophie Lewis as our guest to talk about the family and why we should abolish it. But before we get started on that, let's get our drink orders in and our rant and raves. So, Rick, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about this week? This week, I'm going back to one of my classics and a classic cocktail. I'm going to have a Tom Collins. (laughs) And I am raving about getting work done in bars. Yes. Cosign. Over the summer, I agreed to two external tenure reviews for other universities. And of course, Summer Rick pushed all of that off, and one of them was due that I hadn't done. So I went to a bar, I sat there, I had some beer, and I cranked that out. I love working in bars. So Lee, what are you drinking and what's your rant or rave this week? I am just going to have a martini. I'm also going to keep it classic, but not as fancy as Rick. As usual. (laughs) Yeah, right. I am raving this week about Better Call Saul. I know I'm late to this, so if you're one of the 8 million people who have already said to me, I can't believe you loved Breaking Bad and haven't watched Better Call Saul yet, I am watching it. I've raced through it. I'm in the last season already, and I do have to say that it is as good as Breaking Bad, but cinematically some of the best television I've ever seen. So I'm definitely raving about Better Call Saul. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, this week I'm going to have a red stripe. I have a certain fondness for those little brown bottles, and it has a, <laughs> just enough of a kick that it goes really well with spicy food, and I eat a lot of spicy food, so I'm going to have a red stripe. And this week, I am ranting about white supremacist talking points going mainstream. <laughs> DeSantis sent plane loads full of migrants to Martha's Vineyard, and with that, there's been a lot of discussion on television and elsewhere and by politicians about this whole idea of a liberal elite who wants diversity for thee, but not for me, I think it goes. And this is something that used to be You'd have to go deep into the recesses of Stormfront and white supremacist chat groups to find this idea of the elite trying to push diversity onto others but living in their own liberal white enclave. And of course, there are a lot of problems as to why which neighborhoods tend to be white neighborhoods and so on. But it's really disturbing to see this showing up now in politicians and on public television shows and to see something that used to be in the recesses of the white supremacist fringe once again come into the mainstream and almost no pushback from it on the part of yeah. other media organizations. So we're really happy to have Sophie Lewis with us this week, the author of Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against the Family, and more recently, Abolish the Family, A Manifesto for Care and Liberation. So Sophie, what are you ranting or raving about and what is your drink order? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on. I think I would like a whiskey sour with egg white. Oh, nice. That's like a hangover drink, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm ranting about state representative from Louisiana, Danny McCormick, who is teaming up with a Baptist pastor to introduce legislation that would mean that pregnant people face murder charges if they have a miscarriage or get an abortion. 
obviously there's any number of abortion related policy you could point to right now to rant about but that's just the one i picked for today Isn't it terrible to have options? (laughs) In this case, yes. (laughs) So Jason, I know we're talking about the family and the possibility of abolishing the family today, but how do you want to frame this conversation? So yes, in a society that is increasingly structured around isolated, self-interested individuals, the family appears to be that one place of refuge, the heart in a heartless world, a space of care in a world of indifference. What then is the case for abolishing it, and how does discussing that reveal the role the family plays in capitalism, and what it might take to create a world in which care and nurturing are available to everyone, rather than the lucky few happy families? Today, we are talking with Sophie Lewis about the family, abolition, and what it means to create a world of care for all. Sophia, I'm going to start where I think everyone starts, and that is abolish the family? Isn't that a bit extreme? Why take on such a polemical, and I'm imagining also a title which is only going to upset people? So why abolish the family, and why use that as the title of your latest book? I suppose it is a polemical framing. I uh, feel like I begin with every possible reason one might object to the idea of family abolition and sort of take pains to, you know, meet people where they're at in that sense and address, assuage, defuse, but also not deny the traumatic or reactive knee-jerk responses people would have. When we were chatting via email in preparation for this, you did call it a polemic. And I actually had a little minute of, you know, reflection about that because I've been told it's a polemic. Indeed, my articles get given titles without my foreknowledge, by the way, because that's how (laughs) journalism works. Like, you know, abortion involves killing and that's okay, right? (laughs) So sometimes I feel like owning the title of provocateur and polemicist, but I also think that provocation and polemic are words that denote a certain lack of sincerity or a lack of sort of total seriousness. Mm. And I don't see myself as attempting to shock, you know, there's this phrase, épater les bourgeois, right? I grew up in France. I don't think I'm really hand on heart, right? Not just being disingenuous here. I don't think my impulse, my fundamental motivation is épater la bourgeoisie. It's not my (laughs) intended audience. Of course, I don't have control over who my audience ends up being. But, you know, I think some of the annoyance on the left that I've received over the last 10 years or so is actually about my cringy sincerity. It's Mm. embarrassingly sincere and perhaps... Mm-hmm. you know, too devoid of cynicism or something. So maybe we can talk later about the word utopianism, which is perhaps what I prefer, and the both colonial and decolonial modalities in which utopia can function, and what deploying the utopian as a sort of method might mean. But anyway, that's a lot of like, <laughs> throat clearing, I suppose. <laughs> um, you know, believe it or not, there are others within the very small pond that is the 21st century family abolition revival, who think I'm too conciliatory. So you asked why it makes people angry as well. And on some level, I think that's very obvious, but still worth spelling out, right? If we're talking about face value misunderstandings, 
anger is a totally reasonable response to the intimation that somebody or somebody's are coming to separate you from your loved ones, right? (laughs) 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 But once you've grasped that abolition of the family is not about family separation, in fact, it might be about a horizon of bringing people together for real for the first time in history, then the anger has to be explained a different way. And I think basically that's about wounded attachment because criticism of the family registers in us at the psychic level as an attack on our very selves. So if you think of the common terms of abuse, motherfucker or uh, (laughs) son of a bitch, right? I mean, Mm. these terms of abuse are imputing a failure of patriarchal or familial order in the family of the target. And human beings today live in a world in which economically, physically, psychically, we are our families. Well, just to pick up on what I think Jason was asking, which is why use this title when there are so many kind of obvious knee-jerk responses to it. I am glad you said some of the things that you just said, because I do think that some people Even people who, for example, understand the long history and patriarchal exploitive nature of the family as it is structured today are going to think, but do I have to hate my family to, (laughs) you know, to sign on to Sophie's project? And it's very helpful to say this is not about, as you said, parting from your loved ones or diminishing in any way that relationship with your loved ones, even less hating your loved Mm -hmm. ones that you call family, but stepping back from that relationship and realizing how limited it is, in fact. I even go so far as to say, Lee, that loving your families far from being a requirement for family abolitionism is is probably an obstacle. Like A lot of family abolitionists love their families. That's why you would want the private nuclear household to be abolished such that those people can be part of a less blackmailing, overburdening mode of social reproduction. If you see what the family is like, you want the people stuck inside it to have something more abundant and more free, you know? Exactly. So it is a very earnest horizon of red love, right? That was Alexandra Kollontai's <laughs> phrase for it. it. We're talking about love here, guys, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to me that there's another side of this, and maybe you've gotten some criticism already from this direction, but there is a trajectory, particularly within feminist theory, that wants to center feminist theory precisely on a notion of care that frequently takes as its model the mother-child relationship. And so once you call for the abolition of the family, I'm sure you got some criticism from that side of the spectrum saying, wait a second, this bond is, first of all, a unique bond. If you rob me and us of it, you destroy something central about my participation in the world and my participation, for example, in democracy and community. And therefore, the abolition of the family flies right in the face of this grounding moment of a certain kind of feminist theory. Hmm. Well, I'm really glad you asked me that. It's actually something I get to dig into all too rarely, Rick. So I'm oh. really, yeah, no, for real. I'm all about mothering against motherhood, right? This was a phrase of Adrian Riches, mm-hmm. and it speaks to the sense in which, as I think part of what you're saying implies, that the labor of maternal modeled care is perhaps, you know, one of the most vital and important things on earth. 
That's not something I dispute. That's something I actually advance, right? I can't tell yet for sure if we're in disagreement or not, but motherhood is a patriarchal institution that actually chokes that labor and that relationality by privatizing it inside the private nuclear household. So when we say mothering against motherhood, we're actually talking about an insurgency of motherers, right? That's another sort of coinage that I have to try and evoke the way that rather than an identity, we might think of mother as a verb, a very sort of open gendered type of relation orientation. So anyone can mother. And indeed, the best dads are motherers. So I hope that that gets at some of what my orientation might be. This goes back more to full surrogacy now, in fact, than anything I get to go into in great detail in this new, very short, abolish the family follow up, basically. So then that means that the purported naturalness of having a child in my womb, giving birth and so on, you want to say is something that is not immune from being structured by patriarchal capitalism. Oh, yes, absolutely. 100%. The idea that there is one mother-child relation or that somehow a relationship naturally or automatically stems from the gestational labor process is all completely untenable for me. I mean, there are all kinds of relationships that could stem and do stem, in fact, right, from the experience of gestational labor. One might call it unfortunate, but, you know, there is no automatic relation that stems from having gestated someone. Mm. We encounter one another as intimate strangers, always. And, you know, the work that mothers in general, as a population do, is persecuted and undervalued. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily uniformly great, let alone liberatory. However, as uh, black feminists and queer, you know, anti-capitalists have talked about, it might be, right? Mothering could be an in and of itself liberatory type of collaborative labor. Those steps often get skipped, right? Yeah. But in the political landscape, we get this kind of matrophobic versus maternalist feminism split. Are you for or against mothers? Right. And so I'm trying to say, no, this is a dialectic of mothering against motherhood. And if you want to really, you know, look after those who are currently known as mothers in our society, you have to abolish the family, which is a way of taking untold quantities of unpaid work from them, isolating them, and forcing them to be the reason their children know very few other carers. Mm. While meanwhile, their children are the reason they give their lives away in work, right. which is just a shitty structural demand on everybody concerned. So I wanted to ask you, what is your definition of the family? Forewarning, I'm going to ask it in an unnecessarily antagonistic way <laughs> on the basis of what you just said. <laughs> So I'm wondering why retain this rhetoric of care and the categories of carers, like, for example, the mother, in your project. So one way to talk about the family is a privatized location or body of care. It sounds like what you're saying is that that's not actually what the family is. The family is about the privatization of property, greasing the wheels of passing wealth over generations, etc. And that the care figures that we've made the protagonists of the family are inventions to cover over what the family actually is. So why not just get rid of talking about mothers and fathers and families as care units 
and just talk about them as wealth units. And then we can abolish that and then talk about some kind of a non-privatized, non-capitalist, progressive sense of care communities. Mm, I'm not sure I understand why we would start talking about non-capitalist care communities afterwards only. Because it seems to me that the figure of the mother and the father, honestly, and the child and the cousin and the auntie and the grandfather, etc., are all figures of relationships of care. And that's why people are resistant to abolishing the traditional way of understanding those relationships, when in fact what they actually are are maintainers of a capitalist structure of wealth accumulation and the ability to pass wealth uh, for generations. I think I understand. So I think my response is, you know, do you think care is just a sort of positive category? No. Because, yeah, I think for me, you have to talk about the way that care is privatized and how that very complexly links to property, which you want to center, which I think is also right. But I don't think you can disentangle that because care, despite how a lot of progressive and liberal and leftist and socialist feminist academia and, you know, activists too are talking about it, uh, it's not an antidote exclusively to the evils of the world. On the contrary, right, care is precisely what manufactures us and produces us. I want to talk much more about the form of care, the distribution of it, the anti-work horizon that we need to look at in the context of care. Domestic care workers, for example, used to organize in a much more sort of militant way in and against the work that they were associated with. For instance, I'm talking, mm. I guess, about the 70s. Today, we have a far reduced horizon, I think, where, you know, I'm not trying to sort of bitch here. I understand structural reasons for this, but people tend to just demand dignity and valuation for undervalued care work. And to me, that really misses a lot of what is wrong precisely with the forms of care that do happen. You know, there is a lot of care in the world that I would actually like to get rid of, really. We actually need to get into the very difficult terrain of what we might want to take less care of, in fact, as mm -hmm. a society, right? What mm -hmm. do we take care of that needs to be unmade? So for mm -hmm. me, that's the underbelly of social reproductive politics, perhaps even necro-politically inflected side of it, because right. this is the terrain about people-making, about life-making, and if all we can do as revolutionaries, which I, I don't know if that's an adequate description of this room, but for me, you know, if revolutionaries can only valorize it, then they're obviously going to miss their mark because social reproduction is a part of the whole. So it's going to be, in a sense, you know, as evil as the point of production, if you like, right? This is why I don't want to romanticize mothers, fathers, children, which you're right, Lee, are figures that speak to us as emotional bonds. But I would also argue that they are, you know, complexly <laughs> identifiable also as figures of nationalism, figures of racialization, yeah. figures yeah. of work distribution, and figures of property in and of themselves. Because let's remember that marriage itself was a property contract. You know, children used to be much more explicitly property than they are now, although you can see the echoes of the child as property history of the family yeah. in language and practice everywhere, right? I watched a clip from Tucker Carlson this morning for my sins, and, and he was... Bless your heart. <laughs> Not recommended. <laughs> you know, he was explicitly calling for queer educators to be attacked, actually. It's getting pretty intense. And he was saying, if you sexualize my kids... I am going to hurt you because I am the dad. 
right? There were these sort of statements like that that he was repeating that very much reinscribed children as a sort of figure of innocence, also a form of property, right? That patriarchs are entitled, a bit like they're entitled to defend their settler colonial homesteads, to do violence in the name of. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So Sophie, we've been talking about abolishing the family and the family as a site of care. But one of the things that you bring up in your book I think is very interesting is the family is also a site of harm physical harm, psychic harm, and so on. Many people know that the family is a site of harm. Many people come from relations that have harmed them in the family. Yet there seems to be, whenever you talk about abolishing the family, everyone goes to this idealized image of the family. Like, What is our right. attachment to a very idealized image of the family? And why do we refuse to acknowledge, or why do people so often refuse to acknowledge that the family is also a site of harm? And part of the privatization of the care is also leaving very vulnerable people at the sort of mercy of whoever happens to be in a home with them. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that question of sort of why we cleave to the idealized image is perhaps too big of a question, I think. But I can offer some suggestions, right? I don't ever want to suggest minimizing the extent to which the family really does function, especially for racialized populations who are persecuted by the state or indigenous populations whose forms of kinship were destroyed, leaving them in some cases to cleave to the private nuclear family because, you know, alternatives had been destroyed by colonialism, right? The extent to which the family really is a sanctuary and does provide the only forms of protection from the police or, you know, respite from the exploitation of the market that people have, right? That's really, really important. So, Emotionally, family is where we experience certain forms of uncommodified and even unalienated labor that some of us enjoy at least some of the time. Bell Hooks has a really nice essay on this role of, she doesn't link it to the family, but she links it to what she calls home space. And she calls it a site of resistance precisely in the face of a society that is indelibly marked by racism, as you put it, this site of respite and therefore a site of resistance. And so I think her essay beautifully captures the point you were just making. Yeah. I mean, it's been very interesting to me to go into the archive that I perhaps somewhat neglected when I was writing Full Surrogacy Now of radical black feminist arguments and fights over this question. The most militant voices of family abolitionism that I've found have actually been from black radicals in the third world liberation and gay and lesbian third world mm. liberation formations mm. in the 70s. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you have very important, well-known black feminist texts. You just named one, Rick, but 
you know, Hazel Carby also has her famous intervention, White Woman Listen, in mm. which she says mm. that the white feminist movement is overstating or overgeneralizing the oppressive effects of the family. Because for black communities, the family has been a site of resistance. And she at the same time says, black women do not deny that the family is a site of oppression. That's also part of what she says. And I would say that's not where we're at now, is it? Like, <laughs> no one could accuse white mm -hmm. feminism of, you know, attacking the family too much, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, today. <laughs> so we're in a different integument. But, you know, the family as a site of violence used to be one of the most important talking points, I would say, for feminism. Kathy Weeks calls it, in a witty title, the most infamous proposal of the feminists, you know, which is a reference to the infamous proposal mm -hmm. of the communists, mm -hmm. which Marx and Engels mention in their correspondence, right. because they are talking about abolition of the family, which in their words, makes even the most radical flare up. And Kathy <laughs> Weeks is talking about how it was really almost breaking into mainstream feminism, really. It was really common to say feminism is against the family. Universal 24-hour free daycare centers, for instance, was a really middle-of-the-road feminist demand at the height of women's mm -hmm. liberation, about 1971 or 1970. And she traces the very active process of forgetting and unmaking that, right? The way that people said, you know, we tried to abolish the family in the long 60s, we failed, that means we were wrong. And in fact, for some people, that means we never did it, actually. We never said that. We never said that. And you can see so many instances of feminists saying, we never attacked the family. You know, Barbara Ehrenreich yeah. says that, Gloria Steinem says that. In fact, we want more family, not less. And, you know, there's a sort of sleight of hand there that I recognize, because when faced with people's emotion and distress, I've very much wanted to say, no, no, don't worry, I'm talking about real families against the family. And maybe some of this becomes semantic, <laughs> right? Anyway, I think I'm digressing now from the actual point. <laughs> the violence that you mentioned, you know, that's exactly what people used to stress, right? The family is where the overwhelming majority of sexual violence happens on this earth. No one is more likely to hurt you <laughs> than family. And because of the sort of sanctity and also still enduring very real forms of legal impunity, that exist around mm -hmm. the family. It's really the most dangerous zone, you know, for children, queers, women. This used to be what people say, right? Women must escape. <laughs> children and women together must escape the private nuclear household. Feminists used to talk about urban architecture as an important part of this because the private kitchen is a way of keeping women and children in private space. So if we had kitchenless cities, as they used to be called, which really means that kitchens are sort of communalized common public. Even if there are still private kitchens, you can rely on food being available for you in common public space. Then we will have gone some way towards abolishing the family. And it's important to have those sorts of ways of escaping a zone where otherwise you are exposed constantly to the power of patriarchs and to the forms of sexual violence that go along with family and familiality. But I wonder if part of the answer to Jason's question about why are we so attached to the caring, nurturing, loving family and ignoring the experience that many have of a psychologically and physically violent family and so on doesn't go back to what Lee said earlier, namely the family is a site of what Marx refers to in his critique of the story about what is normally called originary accumulation. The family is the ongoing site 
of accumulation precisely in the form of unwaged labor in care in raising and nurturing, in cooking, and so on, that the gestational labor and the post-gestational labor is a necessary feature of capitalism because it is a source of wealth that goes unpaid and therefore is an accumulation of wealth. And therefore, and I thought this was a point Lee was making earlier, to lay over care and the value of motherhood and the bond of mother and child and the nurturing family, all of this also at the same time covers over the fact that there's a theft of wealth creation that only the family makes possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I say, I shouldn't have said wealth creation. I meant value creation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what you're getting at is well expressed via the question of work, because what social reproduction theorists, much as that field is, you know, having quite difficult misunderstandings and arguments about its limits and purview right now. It's, I think the fundamental fact, the family is part of the work society, the hiddener abode, the even more hidden abode. <laughs> That's good. That's good. It, you know, it's a really, really fundamental insight, which I almost want to suggest still hasn't really been fully digested by us. The work that is so gendered or like that creates gender, arguably, in the home, this unpaid gendered work. And then, of course, has its counterpart in the sort of paid, gendered and racialized work that mirrors it in the families of the ruling class. This is a social factory that we need to think of as inseparable from the sort of traditional point of production. So I want to talk about everything you've just said. I think for me, at least at the moment, in the language of anti-work, the family is the mm. reason people want to go to work. And it's the reason people have to go to work. And it's the reason people can go to work all at once. Right? And it is itself a terrain of work. So it is a really great way, I think, of trying to grasp the true challenge of anti-work thinking, which becomes a very bad form of politics unless it is feminist, right? There are forms of anti-work that somehow try and dispense with thinking through care and life-making in the terms of anti-work. And they end up in really terrible places, in my opinion. I think you have to start with what anti-work might mean in the most difficult places. I would suggest starting there rather than trying mm. to incorporate later, because it is in this very difficult place where the work is partly unalienated, partly representative of our desires and our liberatory potential, but still being stolen from us by capital that I think we need to focus in thinking what it would mean. Mainly probably a redistributive question, but then also some kind of qualitative Aufhebung has to be has to be involved, I think. What would it mean to care for yeah. one another in a liberatory way? I want to come back to my earlier question, which is to ask you to define what you mean by the family, but I want to pose it in a less antagonistic <laughs> way this time. And I want to ask... If you could give us a concise definition of what is the family that you think needs to be abolished and maybe also contrast it with what often today, especially in queer communities, is called a chosen family. Mm -hmm. Like what is different between the family that is this site of capital production, the privatization of work, of exploitation and harm, that sort of family, as opposed to, and maybe it's not opposed to, but what queer people generally call their chosen families? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say we have been defining the family, right? I think the privatization of care is basically the definition 
that I'm using, yeah. right? Which sounds counterintuitive yeah. to, to people, but it's also the explanation for why I don't try and reserve or save a particular family form from this horizon of abolition, right? Like you've named the queer family, the chosen family, the, well, and, and much perhaps more inflammatorily, right? Like, you know, the black family, right? The migrant family, right? It doesn't make sense to talk about exceptions like that because when the family is the privatization of care, it is precisely those families that we might think of as having deeper ties and connections to technologies of survival and care that would be at the forefront and most benefited by the abolition of care privatization, right? They would be the ones with the most to teach and also the ones who have the boot of family values and family discipline, this kind of economic social order that is tacitly a whiteness structure, I think, right? And so even when people emulate and try to fit themselves into the model of the family and worship the family ideal from a position of marginality, you know, they're never actually gonna like win that way, right? There is no liberation that way. You, you're never going to be let in you're to the wages of the family. Or perhaps maybe never is not quite correct, but there is no collective liberation in that way, right? The border does not somehow abolish the family when it tears migrant relatives from one another. In fact, that is the regime of the family functioning at its cutting edge. That is the regime of the family that says, you know, severing biological and legal relations is the most effective way of causing harm and being a deterrent. And it implies if you are a legal family, this, this is why DNA tests exist at the border to verify the veracity of your familial claim. When you arrived in America, you would be respected and the boundaries of your private nuclear household would be honored by the state, which is just not true, right? It's just not true. The black family, for example, as sociologists keep saying, has never been respected by the state. It's always permeable. Its borders are always permeable. And there's no amount of respectability politics that seems to change that for black people in America, right? Anyway, to answer your question about the chosen family, it doesn't address the privatization of care, unless it does. But I would rather talk about that. The simple concept on its face of chosen family doesn't address the question of those not chosen. Queerness has a history of class insurrection, of being in and of itself an insurrection against private property. And that increasingly is a faded memory, <laughs> apart from for some of us, because, you know, in the 80s, via the Holocaust that was AIDS and the emergence of a sort of homonormative subject in a very tragic capitulation to the organized Anita Bryant flavored charge of grooming the pedophilia smear against queer life has been to say there is no oxymoron in the phrase, the queer family. And that's why we have Neil Patrick Harris rather than the Gay Liberation Front today. People don't even remember how there could possibly have been an opposition between queerness and bourgeois familiality, apart from on the very far right, I guess. Yeah. If I could just push back a little bit, because I don't want to collapse queer family and chosen family into the same category, because it does seem to me that there are many queer families that are examples of what I'm calling chosen families. There are many other examples of what I'm calling chosen families. But just to get back to your definition of the family as the privatization of care, it seems to me that one function of the family as the privatization of care is as a function of capitalism, 
as I said before, to be the unit of the accumulation of wealth and the passing of wealth across generations, and also the exploitation of labor using these familial archetypes. That's one function of that privatization of care. So in that sense, the privatization of care is in the service of capitalism. There's another sense, which I think you kind of alluded to, where that privatization of care is in the service of the law, we could say generally. And an example of this would be the example that you used of migrant families whose parents and children are separated from one another because that's the way for the law to do the most harm, to be the most effective, is to recognize this as a family and the best way to control, to subjectify these subjects is to, you know, separate the parents and the children, for example. It seems to me that chosen families are not that. They're not the privatization of care. In fact, they're exactly the opposite. There is no pro forma edicts about who should be cared for, who can be cared for, who should or should not be excluded. That's not to say, that, of course, that there won't be exclusions. But because those exclusions are not written into the ideologies of capitalism or the law, they are malleable, they're flexible. You know, maybe we could say they're more caring. I obviously don't want to valorize care either, but the fact that they're not private in either the sense of the law or the sense of capital seems to me to really distinguish them from the family as you've been talking about, including the queer family, which is actually just a regular family. Okay. Thank you. That's clarifying. I think I'm basically on the same page as you, Lee. And perhaps there was a slip there where I was, yeah, I was conflating. But I suppose I kind of need maybe from you a little bit more definition of the chosen family phenomena that you have in mind. Are we talking Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson's Star House, things like that? Because for sure, I talk about insurgent social reproduction, if you like, and think of them as very much glimpses in the cracks of the present yeah. of what a more liberatory mode of care would look like. I suppose that I find the word chosen not particularly congenial just for my own imagination, but that's not to say that actually I get what you're saying. And, and in fact, I say the same already. Yeah. And I know that you do. And I think that this is going to be a tricky, tricky answer. But of course, I don't know what the chosen family is. It seems to me to be the interim between the recognition that the official family needs to be abolished and the revolutionary relations that come next. I don't know what they are, but it seems to me in the interim that we have to choose something other than the traditional family. And so it's a, I don't know, a kind of incrementalist move maybe would be one way of figuring it. I'm not sure. I mean, the really like dark way of interpreting the possible insufficiencies of notions of chosen family would be, I guess, like the sense in which people say we're all a family in places like corporations and retailers and workplaces, right? Um, but I think that's definitely not a chosen family, right? I mean, I don't think that there can be any universalist sentiment in the chosen family. Why? Because it's chosen. It's not everyone. No, I mean, I get what you're saying, but I do actually want to insist a tiny bit on what it actually means psychically to invest 100% in a team, sort of us against them mm -hmm. fantasy, which feels good. You know, dark as it is, I do think that is actually working for some people when bosses ask workers to get on board with the idea that quote unquote associates are all part of a big happy family. And that ethos means 
in a kind of constitutive contradiction that they don't have to take care of them and can hyper exploit their labor because that's what love discourse in capitalism does. It drives down wages and lubricates hyper exploitation and they can fail to provide health insurance and benefits. They can expect compliance and hush hush, right? No whistleblowing around all manner of rule and regulation breaking because we have each other's backs. Okay, it's a bit provocative to say maybe almost that's a way of you know, choosing family. But I do think that's actually sometimes what happens. People identify and, and that's evil, isn't it? That's obviously incredibly evil. But I don't think there's absolutely nothing to do with each other, right? Between the idea of really throwing yourself into a small group of people who become your us against a generalized them and who you are happy to lay down your life for because that's the beauty, the dark beauty to go back to an earlier question, right? Why people have this idealized image of the family. It's because people are actually masochistically inspired, sort of getting off on the idea of suffering for family, of having someone to suffer like that for. I'm wondering if in this discussion between you and Lee, the question isn't more about why then hang on to the term family? And secondly, what are we bringing along, consciously or unconsciously, when we carry on the word family, even when it becomes a perhaps liberatory or partially liberatory notion like the chosen family? And I think you're bringing this to the corporate speak about, you know, we're all one big family is really interesting here. I've always thought that in Marx's analysis of the petty bourgeoisie, one of his arguments is it's precisely because of this love and care structure that allows the family members to be exploited in order to create ever more value. And therefore, we should be really scared the moment someone wants to use the term family <laughs> when it doesn't apply. Yeah, I have a little joke to that effect in the book, as you may recall, <laughs> you know, like logically speaking, given <laughs> the statistics we have on what family actually does to one another on this earth, it should register as a horrible threat when you get on a plane and they say, you know, we're going to treat you like family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> read out the brief thoughts that Tiffany Latabo King has in her essay on yeah. abolishing Moynihan's uh, quote-unquote Negro family, because I think it really speaks to what you're saying. So I say we absolutely have to face the question, whose family are we abolishing? Still, the answer may not be what we expect. The answer might be, in fact, my family first, please. Tiffany Latabo King writes of her commitment to the ongoing life of the black intramural. Quote, while I exist blissfully and sometimes uneasily within a formation that must constantly be reshaped and eventually even abolished in order to be capacious and loving enough to address its own violence and continue to invite in all of those that desire its embrace, it may be necessary to go beyond it. While I critique the family and I'm committed to addressing its limitations, even its elimination, I celebrate the creative ways that black descendants of captive communities continue to reinvent and conceptualize relationships. So I think there's something there about the closed versus open character 
of the family. And Lee, I totally agree with you that the thing about chosen family in practice has historically tended to be that it embodies a commitment to that openness, you know, the porousness that enables those who desire its embrace to be included. So in a sense, it is terminological. And I talk about kinship and the possible limits of talking about kinship all the time, thinking with kinship as a horizon in the final chapter of the book. Because I am worried about the way we can't help but replicate a certain kind of naturalism, a certain kind of determinism, a certain kind of reference back to nature when we say family and when we say kinship, which is why we need modifiers like chosen. If chosen kin, Mm -hmm. you know, if it really packed the same punch (laughs) of just the word kinship, then we would, we could just say, right? I don't know. Maybe that's like facetious. I worry a bit that we don't sufficiently challenge those parts of us that want the comforts of a certain kind of bio legally imagined non-contingent structure for our identities, right? An underlying ground that also creates that us versus them, that micro kernel of nationalism, I guess. The example that you use of the corporate person, you know, who says like, we're all on the same team, we're all in the same family. That seems to me not an example of a chosen family, even if the employees you know, are like, yeah, I'm a part of the Apple family or whatever, because that so obviously imitates the model of the patriarchal family. Someone says, this is the family. Are you going to be like one of the children or are you going to be the prodigal child that goes away or whatever? But it does seem to me that the chosen family is never imposed from above, right? It's never imposed by a metaphorical Mm -hmm. patriarch or by the law or by capitalism or by any set of work relations. Like what it is, is a recognition that I have some need and someone else can care for me or I have some care and someone else needs it. And that's it. That's the like only qualifications for the chosen family. So I think you're right. This is actually really good because I, I need to resolve some of these contradictions before I go and do a bunch more events. You but know. Lee, I take it that one of the reasons to hold on to the phrase chosen family is because family provides a certain kind of model of relationship. And unlike a natural family or DNA kinship and so on, this is one where that relationship is made on the basis of choice. But then I want to go back to the point I raised before, namely, aren't you then surreptitiously authorizing and legitimating the very notion of family that is not chosen? Well, this is why I described it as a sort of interventionist move, right? I don't want everybody to be chosen families. Right. <laughs> you know, what I want is for us to maybe recognize chosen families as opening up possibilities that might make us mm. more sympathetic mm-hmm. to the abolition of the yeah. traditional family. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I guess the extra piece, right, is that family abolition for me is about not needing the family about building the world in which nobody needs the family. So in that context, you've sort of hollowed out the word family to mean who do you actually want to share a bed with and share a pantry with and share a roof with, you know, 
whether that's 100 people or 10 or whatever, hopefully not too few, you know, <laughs> I think we do need to think about collectivizing life in general, even if there are little enclaves and possibilities for intimacy and a certain kind of privacy. But, you know, you've hollowed it out to mean simple options like that, preferences. For me, what doesn't quite get at that about chosen family is the implication that maybe promulgating practices of chosen family would eventually abolish the family in the sense of the privatization of care, which it would not. See, that's where I think we disagree. Yeah. Because I do agree with you that what we want to do is move towards a world in which people don't need the family. But it seems to me that the best way to do that is through chosen family, where the only rules if there are even rules, the only practices are those of who has need and who has care to give. And then it seems to me that that is exactly the kind of interventionist step that you need to move towards a world in which people don't need families because everyone relates to one another as when I have care to give, I will find someone in need. When I have need, I will find someone with care to give. But what about those not chosen? Because one thing that the family does do is provide for the assholes that nobody chooses. Right? <laughs> I think the kind of missing step in our conversation is, maybe this is a misdescription, but I think both of us keep moving back and forth between the present material conditions and the utopia that we are aiming for. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe we see different steps to get from one to the other. And so just to answer your question, what about the people who are not chosen? Well, if what we're both looking for is a world in which people don't require a family, don't require someone who is required to care for us, like in that world, we don't have to choose, right? And so to move from this world to that world, we have to start to expand that sense that there are requirements for us to care towards certain people or to need towards yeah. certain people. I want to talk about what's happening with the family now, because it seems like there's a real pushback against the already existing porousness of the family and an attempt to kind of entrench the, what everyone call it, the non-shows and the conscripted family as a kind of authority. And I'll give you a quick story to illustrate this. Here in Maine, a teacher posted a picture of herself in her first grade classroom waiting for the students. And it had in it some line on the board about everyone is family here. And it also had some rainbows. Oh, yeah. This got picked up by certain right-wing trolls as like, pull your kids out of school. The school is not a family. The family has authority, you know, and also reacted against or saying like everyone is welcome here. I mean, the extreme version of this is the discussion of groomers and so on, but there seems to be this real move now against teachers specifically. Teachers are suspect because they are another site of authority mm. and care and they might say things that the family people are born into are not happy with, right? This attempt to kind of shore up the family against what I'm thinking of is already existing porousness. I'm thinking of the way in which a teacher is a kind of figure of care, a figure of upbringing, and so on. And an underpaid one at that. An underpaid one at that, right. 
And so I guess I'm wondering your thoughts about what we're seeing right now, where there seems to be an attempt to really circle around a very restricted sense of the family against any other alternative site of care and nurturing, especially for those people like trans youth and so on, who might not find the care and nurture in the home that they have come into. I mean, I think you've said it, Jason, you know, there's this sort of bunkerism mentality. Maybe that's not even the right word for it. But the real ideologues of family values are on some level wounded and vaguely disgusted and threatened at the presence of other people mm-hmm. in the world. You know, <laughs> If you think about the almost slow erosion of the possibility of speaking to a child who is not quote unquote mm-hmm. yours, you know, I would dispute the idea that children should be spoken of as anybody's in that way. At the level of language, I would actually suggest that there might be something generative about challenging that constant identification of your kid, my kid, Of course, you're going to talk with possessive pronouns, right? You know, my partner. But there's something about the complete unthinkability of children's liberation. I think even compared to family abolition, children's liberation is almost more out of sight, more Mm. banished from the sphere of the thinkable, because we have no capacity to challenge in a full-throated, affirmative way the pedophile smear. You know, it sounds like it's some sort of culture issue, some sort of peripheral phenomenon. It's not. I would argue it's like a deep development in the class war, right? The pedophile smear is about the hyper-privatization of care. It's about removing children even from the terrain of school. Like, school, you know, school can hardly be accused of being, you know, a revolutionary social space. Right. Right? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's being removed from the field of the ethno-nationalist demos or something. It's, you know, perhaps school teachers are outside. That's too much interference, mm-hmm. too much plurality. One grown up in a child's life too many, right? What do they want? What do teachers even want with children? Isn't it a bit suspect? Mm. You know, <laughs> what, why are teachers so obsessed with children? Let's think about that. You know, I'm kind of joking. It's too horrible to even joke about. But, you know, I spoke to a child on a subway, uh, in a a subway car. Well, actually, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how they identified. I mean, I didn't feel like they were my child, but (laughs) they said to me, are you a boy or are you a girl? Because I had a buzzed head at the time. And so I say, I don't know. What do you think? And they said, a boy because of your hair, but a girl because of your dress. And I said, okay, yeah, I mean, I think I'm sort of down with that. Well, how about you? And then at that point, this grown up who I assume was, you know, the kid's (laughs) mother just like literally physically removed the child Mm. from the space, you know, because a conversation like that is maybe just threatening, wrong, you know, but I think there's so much that needs to happen in the terrain of critical childhood studies, I guess, going mainstream. Like, I think we should be challenging the edifice of childhood, innocence, reviving ideas about generational segregation, thinking about children's agency and subjectivity and leadership in politics, or certainly participation in politics. I think we should be reviving talking points about children being the poorest people Mm. on earth, right? (laughs) And this political moment in which trans children's bodies are a political battleground is maybe a great time to do that. 
yeah. we're late we're late right yeah. we, we need to do this now like because obviously children are participants in the private nuclear household who deserve better as do all of us right but it's few and far between the figures in feminist history who suggested that children should have some sort of democratic say in who they live mm-hmm. with and how but in this moment where the state says that in the name of countering child abuse we're going to remove children from their trans affirming caregivers right like that is an excellent time to look to trans children themselves for mm-hmm. political leadership if i could just ask a slightly tangential question I think that one of the things that we haven't talked about is the fact that the family is not only a location of the privatization of care that involves exploitation, but also the privatization of exploitation. Mm -hmm. So we know, for example, that most families in the United States anyway, have their own washers and dryers, their own yards, their own consumption patterns that are devastating to the planet. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit to... non-ideological reason to abolish the family, or at least a ecological reason to abolish the family. Ah, as we used to say on my environmental policy masters, the post-political is the most political. (laughs) 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 The ecological cannot ever be non-ideological because nature is the most ideological of concepts. There's nothing less natural than nature. But yeah, I, I mean, it's clearly bananas (laughs) in a way that can be expressed in a sort of like evidence-based, data-driven, whatever, like way that every household has a washer and a dryer and a kitchen. Like why? It doesn't make any sense at all. There's one right above you. There's one on the other side of that wall. There's another one right below. Like, do you not think maybe we could share? (laughs) You know, isn't that what parents are supposed to instill in children at a very early age? Like the ability to share, and then that's just thrown out the window under the pressures of the market. Obviously, I'm not suggesting people are all like, ah, this is how I want to live. You know, in some sort of a historic vacuum. right? Right. Obviously, this is deeply layered, deeply driven by. Well, frankly, yeah, the commodity market, the housewifeization of America and the rest of capitalist reality, right? Like the 50s, <laughs> etc., right? Like the multiplication of identical little boxes on the hillside with lawns and kitchen appliances, which is a very complex history because obviously, you know, it is great that appliances have automated aspects of domestic labor that would otherwise take four times as long. But at the same time, as we know, as Marxists, this isn't really for the workers' benefit, right. even if in a transitional sense it does produce certain forms of leisure and even pleasure and ease. The work burden of the family has mysteriously multiplied, even Mm. as automation has taken over more and more. And then, of course, you need to talk about the gigification and task rabbitization character of everything. And I mean, I I hired a task rabbit the other day because <laughs> I couldn't bear the state of this shrub that grows <laughs> on technically my tiny sliver of pavement. You know, I was like, oh, I can't deal with this shrub. Let me hire a, you know, a wife. Let me hire a wife to do this. <laughs> right. Or maybe a husband. I don't know. <laughs> it's the capitalist mirror image of what I want, right? When mm-hmm. I say full surrogacy now, mm-hmm. when I say full surrogacy now, I'm talking about both a dystopian and a utopian characteristic of the world. You know, there's a very violent sense in which care is already surrogated in a combined and uneven way. Mm across the planet, 
That's what Silvia Federici called the new reproductive division of labor, where racialized, feminized people migrate across the world to give their, I guess you could call it mothering or wife services to the families of the ruling class in the global north, or not even just the, the ruling class. You know, and that's a sort of surrogation. That's the sense in which you could talk about the figures excised from the family photo, right. as Kathy Weeks puts it, as surrogates. The utopian horizon of full surrogacy now would be classlessness and the abolition of private property. And it would mean that in some sense, we have learned to act like we are the makers of one another, which is a sort of biological and physical reality of the present, but which is organized in this deeply classed way and colonial way. And so, yeah, sort of by the same token, I guess, it's kind of nice, I guess, in a sort of abstract sense that someone might come into the place that I live and help and vice versa, you know, that I might be good at fixing desks and making banana bread and someone else <laughs> might come and help, you know. But obviously this is all marketized and thus the very antithesis of liberation. And Wait, are you a member of the desk maker, banana bread maker union? <laughs> <laughs> We're not accredited yet. <laughs> Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. This has been such a stimulating conversation, even though I must say it departed quite from the email. Sorry, sorry. That always happens. We have no discipline. That always happens. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one of my favorite books growing up was Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals. It is <laughs> oh, this no. sort of British family in Greece and the sensibility is extremely sort of wry about family members and, you know, each one is absurd, which is which I like, actually. There's something about that romance of like, oh, all my family members are kind of insufferable, but I love them, you know, which is extremely seductive. And I would argue like satire is the main cultural production tone vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. the family. But there's a sense mm -hmm. in which satire takes you so far, sometimes really quite far, like in being cutting. Mm -hmm. sure. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you come away with the sensation that you could do something about this. Right. Right. Anyway, sorry, I'll keep going on because it's really been a joy to talk to you. Before we roll out, I do want to remind our listeners that they can visit our Patreon page. We do privatize our labor and care <laughs> and you can pay for it. So visit that at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Is it terrible if I also mention my Patreon because I'm not paid by Please pen. do. I'm a freelancer. Oh, no, please. Yeah. My Patreon is patreon.com slash repro utopia. All one word, repro utopia. And that will be in the show notes. Thank you. Thank appreciate you. that. Now I'm embarrassed to say I'm calling a lift. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great time. And we will catch you next time. And bye, fam. <laughs> bye, bye. Bye, family. Bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs>